0: All right, guys. Hey, my name's Logan. Uh, I'm a UNCW college student. I've been coming to venture for about a year and a half-ish now, uh, and I'm studying psychology and religion. Just get that spiel out because that's like the first thing everybody asks a college student is, what is your major? What are you majoring and what are you doing after you graduate? And I hate both those questions, but um, so yeah, and I'm actually a representative for Nestle Pure Life, uh, which is, I'm just kidding now. No, <laughs> no um, but I did play that commercial for a reason. Uh, I know commercials are really weird, but um, I played it because it's really adorable because uh, it's all about this, this son and he's just following in the footsteps of his father. His dad goes to the fridge, grabs soda, he does the same thing, walks step with, by step with him to the living room, kicks his feet up with him, you know, the whole deal. Uh, and it's just cute because isn't it just a cool thing to see a kid who wants to be just like their parent? And um, it actually reminds me of when I was younger and I wanted to be just like my dad. And uh, so uh, just an example of this is... Well, we used to come down to the beach, and me and my dad would just go out, and we'd make these, these sand castles, this sand art, because we never really made too many castles. It was more like abstract or really interesting-looking things. Uh, but we we would used to make um, some pretty cool-looking like sharks and mermaids and just all these different things, and my dad was like the master of just crafting all this stuff, uh, and he would just make these things, and people would walk by on the beach and be like, oh my gosh, can I get a picture of that? And we'd let them take pictures and stuff, because it was just that impressive. Um, but I remember looking at that and I'm like, I want to be like my dad. I want to be able to do this kind of stuff because my dad is able to do something awesome and I want to be able to do something awesome too and I want to be able to make things like that. So um, I know uh, when I was about 10 years old, we were down at, the uh, I think we were uh, Myrtle Beach and we were out there and I was like, just got off the high of watching a Harry Potter movie. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to build Hogwarts. And if you don't know what Hogwarts is, Hogwarts is the school from Harry Potter. It's the big castle that they all go to school in. Uh, But I was like, you know what, I will do this. My 10-year-old self is going to sit here for a couple hours, and I'm going to build a Hogwarts worthy of a 10-year-old's image of Hogwarts. So I began the, the long process of trying to take all this sand and just form it, and build this this castle-like structure and I would go get shells and stuff and decorate it and try to make it look something like a 10-year-old representation of what that's supposed to be but the one thing I realized is the more I tried to do that when I was not being helped by my dad the more it just looked awful uh I remember I tried to build a bridge and it just collapsed and I was just fed up with it and I'm like this is it looks like a giant clump of dirt it doesn't look like a sand castle uh, but then my dad came over, and he's like, okay, buddy, we're going to actually sit down, and we're going to build this castle. So uh, he was. He, we sat down, and he's like, okay, I want you to go get sand. I want you to go pick up some shells. I want you to pick up some sticks, and you're we going to bring them back to me, and we we're going to build this castle. So I remember we sat there for a couple hours, even longer. We had brutal sunburns because everybody in my family just burns, and they don't tan. But um, after a couple hours, we had this thing that looked like Hogwarts, sort of, Uh because naturally, Hogwarts is, you're not going to build a Hogwarts out of sand, but hey, look, to my 10-year-old imagination, I'm like, this is awesome. This is Hogwarts. We build this crazy, big, awesome thing, but the thing is, I didn't do anything. <laughs> um, literally, like, my dad just, I showed up, and I said, Dad, I want to, I want you to help me with this, and I want to, I know you've got the vision, so help me to figure out this whole thing, and what do we need to do? And he's like, okay, go get me sand and come to me and give me the sand and we're gonna, I'm going to form it for you. And we basically did that whole thing and we ended up with this masterpiece of a final product. And I think a lot of us probably have similar stories where we either have a parent that we look up to or just a family member or a guardian or something that we just, it, we, we adored. And we wanted to make their values into our values. We wanted to pursue the things that they pursued and we wanted to become like them. And I know that with all the people that I've had in my life like that, when I tried to do that by myself and I tried to live up to that person's legacy and that person's name, I completely and utterly failed when I did it alone. Uh, And I think it's a lot, uh, it's the same with our walk with with Jesus because, I mean, we all, I think everybody in the groom would agree with the idea of we like the idea of loving God. We like the idea of becoming like Jesus and we like this idea of making God's things that are important to him, important to us. But those are extremely difficult things to do. And they're hard for two reasons, I think. And the first one would be because that's a really high standard to live up to, to walk like Jesus walked and be like Jesus. And then on top of that, to make the things that God finds ultimately important, important to us, those are pretty high standards to live up to. Uh, But also I feel like our world is just like bent on keeping us from doing that. Uh, And I remember (laughs) I was talking to someone last year, this isn't even planned, but it just sounds like a good story. But I was talking to one of my friends And we were talking about how, like, college is fully meant on making you selfish in a way because you're fighting for your classes, and if you don't get a class, you will try to figure out a way to get around that. Uh, You will mercilessly steal a class seat from somebody else. Uh, You're trying to get your grades, to get your diploma, so you can go and fight for your job. Uh, But I feel like our whole world is, in a way, trying to to wire us and move us in a way that is opposed to, to God and who he is. So what does that even look like, then, to live for God, to make his things that he likes important to us and to become more like Jesus, because I feel like those are uh, some pretty important questions to ask as Christians, but adventure uh, we like to look to the Bible to the answer to life's most important questions, and I think those are some of the most important questions because they're all pertaining to who God is and what he finds important. And if we want to be people who love God, then it's one of the key things about love is you make the thing that's important to that person important to you. So uh, we're going to look to the Bible to try to see if we can answer that that question today. Uh, So we're in this series called Different, and we're exploring this idea of how Christians are foreigners in this world, and because we're displaced, we're supposed to have these different faiths, these different different values, this different calling, and this different perspective on everything we do in every part of our life, no pressure. Um, So today we're going to be exploring this idea of having a different value in an unholy culture. Uh, And... We're going to be in 1 Peter uh, verses or chapter 1, and we're going to run through verses 13 through 19 today, and we're going to really just sweep through it in one big go, and then we're going to go back, and I want to kind of like touch on each verse and speak a little bit to it because I feel like there's a lot of stuff here that is important for us to know, but I want to start out by giving you some context. So uh, last week, Chris talked about the, the nature of the situation surrounding this book, and I just want to give us a refresher so that we have a mindset that's true to what this is trying to say to us, so... Uh, This book is actually a letter. Uh, It was written traditionally by Peter, and he was one of the 12 disciples, so he spent a ton of one-on-one time with Jesus, Uh, and he's writing to a group of Gentiles, and if you don't know what a Gentile is, basically all it is, it's it's a person who's not a Jew, and uh, these are Gentile Christians that he's writing to, and they're living in this place called Asia Minor, which is actually modern-day Turkey, Uh, and these Christians are under a ton of pressure because they're living in a world where... It's ruled by the Romans, uh, and the Roman. One thing about Roman society is it did not like Christianity because Christianity, at its core, challenges everything that a Roman society would even stand for. And because of this, they were experiencing persecution and pressure not just from the governing authorities, but also from their neighbors and people in their towns. Because uh, they're living in Turkey, that's a little bit of a hop across the lake from Rome, but they're still experiencing this persecution. And Peter's in this letter, he's trying to show them that they are. Because of what Christ has done for them, they are no longer citizens of this Roman culture. They're something completely different now. And he actually does a really good job, because Peter is Jewish, and he's touching on these themes from the Old Testament, which if you're not familiar with that, first two-thirds of your Bible. Um, and he's drawing on this, this one big theme that I feel is central to God's message and what he's trying to do in his mission in the world. And that is the theme of him taking a group of people, making them into some sort of a beacon of light, and then sending them into a dark place so that they can be a beacon of light shining in that dark place. And just as these Christians in in Asia Minor were experiencing all this persecution and all this stuff, they were also being formed into this beacon of light that was supposed to shine in that culture of Rome and bring people to itself. Uh, So starting in verse 13, we're going to run through them all real quick. 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners with reverent fear. For uh, it is not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So this first verse and 13 really does a good job of tying up and reviewing what Chris talked about last week, but also springboarding us into this new idea of having a different set of values in our culture. So verse 13 up on the uh, thing again, therefore with minds that are uh, fully alert, by the way, you, if you have a Bible, you might notice that there is a, you might have a little tick mark that is a footnote reference, and I had one in my, my study Bible, so I looked down at the reference to see what it said, and it said, "In the Greek, also known as the concept of girdling up the loins of your mind." And that's funny because loins is a funny word, and girdling them sounds even funnier. <laughs> so basically, I think the idea of that is you're, you're, you're preparing yourself like you're getting your pants on. You're making sure everything's good so you can go out and, and face what you have to face. Uh, so, and with fully sober minds, minds that aren't clouded, minds that, mind, minds that aren't under the influence of anything, uh, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus revealed is revealed His coming. So last week, Chris talked about this idea of having a different faith in trials. And I think that uh, in order to have different values, we also have to start off with this idea of a different faith. And uh, to kind of get a little bit of an idea of that, I want to share a really quick story. Um, There's this uh, guy that we learned about in psychology, and I've also heard about him in uh, other places. Some churches talk about him, too, because he's got a really powerful story. But his name is Viktor Frankl, uh, and he was a Jewish psychologist that lived during World War II. And in 1942, uh, the Nazis, when they came into Austria, uh, they took his family and put them in a ghetto. And then they stayed in the ghetto for about a year and a half, two years, and then they moved them from the ghetto to a concentration camp. And he stayed in the concentration camp, lost everybody in his family except one of his sisters, and he stayed there until the end of the war when it was liberated in 1945. Uh, So during this time, he began to really cope with the trauma of being in the Holocaust by doing basically his profession, by observing it, by studying it, and then by practicing his profession with the people that he was around. So he spent uh, his years in the ghetto and the concentration camp, Counseling people and just trying to help them cope and realize uh, what was going on with them, and he made two really powerful observations. And the first one was that the people who had put their hopes and their things such as their family, their friends, their old lives, and their own identities were actually the first people to fall into depression once they got to those camps and in that environment. And they were the people who first came to submit to their new identity, which was basically a slave awaiting execution. Uh, and it's just surprising because I think naturally in our world, those are the things we, we like. We want these things. We, we put time and money into them. We, we want to take care of our families. We want to show our friends that we love them and take care of them too, and we just want to really like put a lot of stock in who we are, who God's made us to be, and kind of what we got going on in our lives right now. Uh, and These things are good things. I think that everything that we just talked about and what we mentioned are a blessing from God, but I think there's an issue, and I think the problem with that becomes when we make these things that are good, the things that are the ultimate thing for us, because the one thing about them is they're good, but they're not promised, and one thing that is true, and this is kind of doom and gloom, is that all those things eventually will be taken away from you, Uh, whether it be through like a series of 10 years, or it just always put into two years like a concentration camp situation was, uh, all those things eventually are taken away from you, and when they are, do you have anything left to stand on? No, So naturally, you're just going to succumb to whatever environment you're in. Uh, But the second observation he made is that those who were able to make it through the Holocaust in a quote-unquote healthy way were the people who had something that he describes as a simple hope. And what he describes as a simple hope is something that is transcendent to their current situation and where they're at. And it's something that is not tethered to anything that is tangible that can be taken away from them. So basically, in short... They had their hope in something that was completely not dependent on another person. Uh, So I believe as Christians, we have this unique ability compared to the rest of the world to put our hope in something that is simple, that can't be taken away from us, and that's guaranteed. And I'd even go as far as to say it's this idea of a concrete hope. And what I mean by that is it's not just a wishful thinking type of hope. Like, oh, I really, really hope that the Panthers go to the Super Bowl, like, I'm hoping, but, you know, I don't know for sure. I'm going to be like, yeah, the Panthers are going. I've already pre-ordered my tickets. Like, no, that's not a sure, concrete hope. But I think what God offers us is this concrete hope and our ability to fully put our trust in that. And um, I think this promise that he makes for us, he, he really seals up with Jesus's life, uh, with who he was and how he died, and then also how he was raised to life. And that was the thing that went ahead and just sealed the deal, as in, like, you don't have to worry because... These three things have happened for you, and uh, I think when we fully put our hope in Christ and we begin to have that idea of a concrete faith, we're actually living out what the Bible calls the uh, a really functional definition of what the Bible calls faith, which is this idea of being completely sure about something that you cannot see. Uh, but the last part of this verse, it really talks about how we should bank on this hope. It says, "Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you uh, when Jesus Christ is revealed at coming." Like. It expects us to bank on that, and um, it's not only a a thing that we should use to help us get through trials, but I think it's also fuel to the fire that we should have to begin pursuing God in all other areas of our life. So moving on uh, to verse 14, as obedient children, did not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Uh, So last week, Chris talked about this idea of once you become a Christian, you are adopted into God's family. You're made a son or daughter of God. Uh, But the thing about adoption, and if you have been adopted or you know people who are adopted, the reason that someone is being adopted is because they were in a situation that wasn't good, and somebody said, I want that child, and I know their situation, but I still want them. I want them to be a part of my family. So they take them out of that situation and into their home, and they love them and treat them the way that they should, or I hope they do. But um, I think we have to remember that we're being adopted out of something if we're being brought into Christ's family. And I think this verse can do a lot to help us get with the idea of what does it mean for us to be adopted out of something, and what does it look like, and what are we adopted out of. Uh, So I'm going to talk about that for a second. But just as a preface, I'm a huge nerd, and I really am a huge Bible nerd, like huge. And my idea of a good time is popping some popcorn and getting a blanket and sitting on the couch and putting on a seminary lecture, and taking notes, and being like, oh yeah, P- propitiation, yeah. But um, And then I also have tried to learn b- biblical Hebrew in the past, which that just shows, and all my college friends are like, oh gosh, she's about to go on a Hebrew rant. But no, I'm not going to, not yet, at least. Um, <laughs> But as I begin to try to study and understand the Bible, I've learned a lot of really cool stuff that gives so much context to what it's trying to say, and what, what these, these verses we talk about say. And one thing that I find super interesting is the cultures that surround these books of the Bible and what they mean for the story. Uh, So like I mentioned earlier, this is a book that's written to people who are in a Roman world. And one of the key things about a Roman world is that at its core, it operates against God and what God stands for. So this nation, if you don't know anything about the Roman Empire, was all about this idea of spreading through conquering. Uh, and keeping its influence and keeping its version of peace through violence. And it sought pleasures and it sought to just really just pursue the pleasures in life and minimize anything that's discomfort or discomforting. And just really at its core, it wanted to play God. It wanted to decide the rights and the wrongs. It was all about idol worship and trying to bend the God's will to your will so that you can go out. That's basically why you worship the idol in the Roman culture is because you wanted a God backing you up so that you could fulfill your purpose But um, in in essence, this is against what God is for. And these Romans didn't really want input from the God of the universe. And they didn't want to be challenged by anybody too, which is why Christians were such a hot target for them. But near this book, Peter also makes this really nerdy reference, but I really like it, uh, where he refers to this this way big archetype throughout the entire Bible of this nation of Babylon and how this is the nation of uh, people that are set up against God and in the Old Testament, if you know anything about the Old Testament, Babylon is also a culture that's ruling the world, uh, just like Rome. Uh, and in, that, uh, in the Old Testament, God's people, the Israelites, are taken into exile. They're made captives of Babylon. They're foreigners in another country, and God's also pouring into them and telling them how they should go about doing that as well. And it's, it's that continuation story about God separating a group of people, making them into a beacon of light, and sending them out. But uh, I digress. But the thing is that these two cultures are very similar because they both embody what it means to be set against God. They don't really want God's input. They want to kind of play and make the rules by their own ways. They want to make their values their values. And if it's a God value, it might fit in there some way, but it's going to be warped a little bit. Uh, And I think it's not too hard for us to kind of look out into our world and see that we kind of live in the same type of a thing. We live in a Babylon. We live in a, a Roman culture. Uh, because if you look out, you just see people arguing all the time about everything. And what does God say about this? What does God say about that in the church even? Uh, But then like on a more political level, it's just a mess. I don't even want to get into that. But um, I think our culture is very much like the Roman culture, because one thing that we do like to do, and we talk about this all the time in psychology, is we like to pursue pleasure. We are hedonists in our culture. We don't like pain, and we really like good things. And our culture manifests that desire in different ways. But I think one of the biggest ways that we, our culture does do that is through things like pornography. And just as like a stat, uh, our culture produces $13 billion a year for just the porn industry. Uh, and there's been studies that have looked at how much do Christians contribute to this whole porn problem and this idea of just pursuing pleasure uh, without God's plan in mind. And it, it's I've looked up some stats and it said that about 47% of Christian families will report that they contrib- their family contributes regularly to the porn industry in some way, shape, or form. And that's just the 47% that had the guts to actually say something about it. But um, it's not that our culture is just big on the vices and the things that God really doesn't want, because like, I think that's a very common idea. Is like, oh, God doesn't want us to have fun or all this stuff. But no, our culture even is bent against the things that God wants for us to have that are good, but that we also idea- we also think are good, but we just still don't do them. And one thing I would think about Uh, is forgiveness, the idea of reconciliation and forgiveness. Because I know everybody in the room and everybody in our culture probably likes this idea of, yeah, I really like the idea of people being reconciled to each other and people being able to forgive each other and bury the hatchet. But when you look at the stats, um, 94% of people in the the country say that they want that, but 60% of them also say, I will not pursue forgiveness with someone else unless they completely change their lifestyle or who they are, or they come and apologize to me first. And although the, our culture is 2,000 years older than Roman culture and even longer than Babylonian culture, we, we kind of have the same problem, and it's all that we really dislike this idea of making our, our values our values, and we don't really pursue God's desires and what he wants for us and how we live in a cultural mindset. Uh, but we can blame this idea of the culture all day long, but basically if you look at what a culture is, it's just a group of people and I think that the reason that Babylon was as unholy as Babylon is and that Rome was as unholy as Rome was and that our culture is as unholy as our culture is is because it's just made up of a ton of people who, in the core of who they are, really want to play God. And they really want to decide, these are my values. I don't really, I like the idea of God's values, but that's not practical to me. I don't know if I want to do that. And it's, I think it's because of that that we see this unholy culture but I think God, as he adopts us into this family, he's adopting us out of this, this culture of wanting to play God, of wanting to have ourselves on the throne in our life, and wanting to be these Romans and these Babylonians. Uh, and he's called us to this alternative that he has to define our values by him. So what does that alternative look like? And I think we can see a little bit of that in the next two verses. So 15, 16. Uh, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So instead of being the citizen of our old culture, we're adopted out of that, we're put into God's family, and he has this desire for us to become holy. And I don't know about you, but that's a very churchy word, holy. And one thing that I've noticed through my years of trying to help People grow in their faith is that when you bring up a churchy word, everybody kind of has an idea of what it means, but it's so misunderstood and it's so far from what the actual meaning of it is because we either say it so often in church that we lose the meaning or it's so vague and whatever that we kind of we have a, a wrong idea of it. And I think that in our cultural mindset, the idea of holy is used more in the phrase like holier than thou, uh, than it is in the proper sense. And I mean, my own personal view of, of holiness when I was growing up, before I really sat down and, and uh, grappled with my faith, was this idea of I need to be morally superior to everybody around me who I consider unholy. And while I am becoming morally superior, I need to physically separate myself from these people, and it's them and me, and there's no us at all. And I think that actually is counter-Bible, and it's definitely not what Jesus taught, and it's definitely not what the Bible speaks to about how. We should go about becoming holy and what it means to look like we live a holy life. Uh, so, like I said, I am a super big nerd, and I really tried to teach myself Hebrew, and that was a process. And I don't suggest you trying to teach yourself Hebrew because it's a 3,500-year-old word or language at least, and it has no vowels. So, I mean, I went, a rabbi told me, he's like, oh, you're at the same level as the kindergartners in the, the synagogue. Good for you. And I'm like, oh, gosh, okay, I quit. I'm just going to wait until I go to seminary or something. But um, because I, I do like the idea of languages, I have a real passion to kind of like just look up what these, these, these words are about. And uh, I, I've done some studying in the past couple weeks on this word holy. And this book of the Bible is particularly written in Greek. Uh, in Greek was the language spoken and used by a lot of the Roman world, and a lot in its writing. And when we look at the Greek, this word holy is this idea of hagios. And hagios, at its core, just means set apart. And in the Bible, it's used in two ways. The first way is to describe God and who he is. So God is this being who spoke this universe into existence, made the world we live on, and who uh, reflects himself in it, but he's completely separate, and he's completely transcendent, and he is just completely unique and utterly nothing like the creation. And <clears throat> I think uh, I think that's a good view of holy, but it's not the view of holy I feel like this verse is talking to when it comes to how we should be holy, because that is a good way of describing God. But I don't think God wants us to be these transcendent beings, because we can't be transcendent beings, that are separated from the culture and the separated from this thing, or that don't look like it at all and are kind of like set apart from it. And um, I think that uh, when God, when the Bible uses the word holy to describe the people of God and how God wants his people to be, like this verse, I think he's talking about this idea of being different. Because at the essence of the word holy, it's just different. It's set apart. It's, I'm like it, but I'm, I'm completely different in some way. And it's not this idea of separating yourself from them but it's this idea of just standing out. Uh, so I think that um, there's another really good illustration that kind of grasps what holy is. So uh, when I think of this idea of something that is utterly unique and that's something that's so different that it just stands out in comparison to anything else about, like, yeah, it's, it's like it, and that is so transcendent in every quality that it has, it just draws the attention of everybody Who comes into contact with it, I think of a Brit's donut. (laughs) Because there is something special about a Brit's donut, and there is nothing like it. I think that's a good idea, though. It's funny, but I mean, that's how kind of God is. God is this transcendent being. He's so different and elusive, and he's mysterious, and that draws us to him. But also, he wants us to be mimickers of that. He wants us to be these people that are so different in our culture that we draw attention to ourselves. And by us drawing attention to our, ourselves, we eventually point back to him, but um, I know that uh, I had a, a large struggle in my life of this idea of holy being this idea of being separate from the world that you're in, and you may be in a place like that. I don't know. Um, I know I was, so I, if you're out there and you're like me, I really wanted to speak to this. Go read the book of Galatians. Uh, that will really set your heart right about what does it mean to pursue people that aren't like you or people that you think you might not want to be around or whatever. Like, It really changed my outlook on what it means to live a life that is a lot like what Jesus has done and how Jesus lived his life. Uh, but uh, to speak to this idea of being withdrawn from the culture, because I don't think that's what the Bible teaches at all. I don't think God wants us to just manage the school systems that we send our kids to, uh, to just cut ties with anybody who doesn't go to church on Sunday Um, And I don't think he wants us to eat Chick-fil-A for the rest of our lives, even though I really think that sounds appealing. But uh, I don't think that's how God wants us to do it. And I don't think that's the advice that he's given people throughout Scripture. And we're actually going to look at a a bit of Scripture today from the Old Testament. As Israel was being taken into Babylon, this is kind of what he gives them through the prophet Jeremiah. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too will have sons and daughters and increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. So this kind of just reflects this idea that Jesus even spoke about in John near the end of his life. He was praying and he said, he had, it's a whole slew of verses, but the whole sum of it is, be." I want them to be in the world. But I don't want them to be of the world. So I think God wants us to go into these cultures that are around us that are pretty bent towards him, and he wants us to make friends. He wants us to go and have social lives with people who are both Christian and non-Christian, and people who may love Jesus, may not love Jesus, who might be somewhere on the, uh, the different political spectrum maybe, different um, religious spectrum, just all over the place. He wants us to go and reach these people that are different, and he wants us to in some way become this, this set-apartness while we're doing that. He wants us to be different and living by his values as we go into these cultures and as we build our houses and build gardens and all that stuff. Uh, so how do we achieve this idea of holiness then? Because I think it's a, we all could agree that it's a really good idea. Like God set up a pretty cool plan here of how he wants to draw people through people. So um, how do we get that? How do we become holy? And the, I think the, the, the bummer is that I don't think we actually can do it on our own. And I think when we do try to pursue God's holiness for us and what he, he is kind of, his values that he has set for by ourselves, I think we end up doing exactly what I did where I was building my sandcastle by myself and I didn't have enough of scope. I didn't have enough uh, of an idea. I didn't have the the mental resources to actually be able to pull that off and it ended up looking like a giant pile of sand. And I think that's kind of the same way with this. If we try to do this, by ourselves, it it doesn't work out well. And I think that's because at our very core, our very own nature is so distorted that we begin to seize autonomy in that process. We begin to make ourselves God as we're trying to follow God, and that just ends up bad, and we end up making uh, God a subject to ourselves rather than letting him be the thing that defines everything for us. Ooh, okay, didn't mean to do that. Uh, So I think God knew that, and I think that he... understands the brokenness and the rebellious nature of our hearts. But I also think he has made a way to kind of combat that and to transform our rebellious hearts into a heart that he desires for his newly adopted children. Uh, And I think we see in the book of Romans, if you haven't read Romans, just go read through Romans. You will learn so much. But in the book of Romans, we see this, this idea of God desiring to conform a group of people to the image of his son. And I think that's what God is trying to do for us, to make us from these rebellious people into his children, is he's trying to conform us to the image of his son. And for those of you uh, who have been in the church in a while, or who have been pursuing God for a while, you may know this as the idea of sanctification. And uh, the Bible makes it very clear that once somebody becomes a Christian, they get this thing called the Holy Spirit. And there's that word again, holy. Uh, God's personal, but completely set apart, completely other transcendent spirit that comes to dwell inside of that person, and begins actually helping them make those changes to become like God. I mean, Chris talks about the Holy Spirit sometimes as when you become a Christian, you invite God into your heart as a roommate. And when you become a roommate, uh, things just start changing in the environment, that social environment there, and the roommate starts to have say in things. And I think that uh, as we begin to have that relationship with Christ, we, we get the Holy Spirit in our heart, and he starts to do that thing for us. Uh, so I think that... Um, in order for us to have the Spirit start refining us, all it takes for us to do is to start that relationship with God through Jesus and for us to just show up, say, What do you want me to do? And how can I pursue you? And then just do what He says. And it'd be just like me going up to my dad and after we completely failed it, I completely failed at building that sandcastle I and mean, being like, Okay, I want you to go do this, this, and this. And I want you to come back to me. I want you to just pursue what I am trying to get you to do. and..." Through those through that event, I will, I will help transform what we're building into something that isn't just something that's going to fall over. That's something that's going to be beautiful and it's going to last. Uh, so co- to continue reading on further, in uh, verse 17, So since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here with reverent fear. Now I think this is probably the heaviest uh, moment that we're going to talk about. And I don't want to fly past this, because I know a lot of people might Try to because it is an uncomfortable verse, uh, but I feel it's important, uh, and I think it's important. I think it's an uncomfortable topic because it has to do with this idea of God being something to be feared, and I don't think we like that. But I think it's important if we want to have a reverent fear of God, which I think is a good thing. We have to understand why is there even a need for there to be some sort of fear in the first place, uh, and I think it's at, because at God's core, He is a just God. And I think we all like the idea, like, yeah, we want justice. I mean, I personally don't have a problem with road rage as much. God's kind of blessed me with some patience when it comes to people. But I know a lot of people struggle with road rage. And I know that sometimes when I'm driving and I see somebody do something completely stupid and they almost, like, get in a wreck with me, the only thing that will make me feel super content in that moment is to watch some blue lights come up and that person get pulled over and justice get issued to them. And I'm like, that's what you get for putting people in danger but um, I think uh, God's justice is actually more of a way of an extension of his mercy. And what I mean by that is I think God is a God that cares. And he cares about his creation. He cares about the world that he's made. And he Ooh, gaga. Oh, okay, there we go. Wow, that came on at the wrong time. Okay, but yeah, back to it. Um, <laughs> I think that God's justice is an extension of His mercy because God actually cares. He, we have a God that literally cares about the world He He's created, and He doesn't like kind of where it's at right now. And I think the thing that makes us feel uncomfortable is because we know that we're kind of the reason that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. We 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 understand. We look out in the world and we see this isn't a, a good place. Sometimes, I mean, it can be at times, but. It's got major issues, and it's definitely not what God has designed his creation to be. And I think we feel uncomfortable because in our core, we kind of know, we kind of contribute that to that. We, in some way, shape, or form, are a part of what has caused this world to not be what God has caused it to be. And because we have a God that actually cares about his creation, so he, he, wants to do, he wants to make it right. And somebody kind of has to pay for what's been done. That's what justice is entailing, and he's a perfectly just person, so he will issue it as it's needed without any uh, partiality. Uh, but I know that when I feel like I'm in a moment like this, where I'm kind of like convicted of that, like I I do contribute to this. And I know that when I feel like I've been pulled over by a cop, which happened to me the other day, but it wasn't a real cop, but that's another story, um, a security officer. But um, when I'm pulled over and I'm sitting there, and I know like, okay, I have done something. Like I am in the hot seat right now. The only thing that can make me feel content As if that police officer says, you know what? I'm gonna let you go. And that just brings a whole peace, it brings a whole joy, and it just brings a new perspective. And it definitely makes me want to uh, just leave those old ways behind so that I don't have to worry about that condemnation or anything like that anymore. Uh, But I wanna just keep on reading. uh, And I feel like this is a really good way to kind of tie up these verses because it, it doesn't just leave us hanging on the doom and gloom of the judgment. I think this is where God really just speaks uh, about some major truths and what he's done. So verses 18 and 19. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So I think what these verses are talking about is to this thing that the uh, that Christians call the gospel. And it's a big fancy word, big churchy word, but literally all that means is good news. And uh, I think that this gospel, this, 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 what this is talking about, this is the climax of the Bible. This is the climax of God's plan and how he is going to go about making people into beacons of light. And I think the amazing thing about Jesus is that he actually is the one who us off the hook. He is God himself, and he takes that punishment. He bears that, that punishment that we just talked about so that we don't have to, that we're, we're set free and we're off the hook, and that's what the good news is. And I think that um, that process not only is something that just lets us be able to be free and be blameless in God's sight, but I think it also is the way that God has made it so that we can enter into his family and we can actually have this idea of starting to pursue holiness with God. And I think it's this gift of grace, this fact that we have been made blameless and that we have this promise of eternal life in Christ, that should motivate us to allow him to set us apart, to allow him to refine us. And I think it's this grace and this gift that is the thing that should sustain us when we are feeling pressures and we are feeling oppositions from our cultures and we feel discouraged. And I think it's this gift that should encourage us as people who want to follow Christ to go out into the dark places of the world and begin shining God's light and begin bringing hope, begin bringing healing, but ultimately bringing reconciliation between God and the people of this world who he loves and wants to be a part of his family. And uh, it makes me think about how when me and my dad finished building this sandcastle, um, I was given full credit for it. Like I was, I did nothing. I just showed up and I handed things to my dad and let my dad just do all the work, all the molding, uh, but I, all I was is present. And when I did that, and after we finished building that masterpiece, like I got the credit. Like I was in all the pictures with it. Whenever people would walk by and be like, oh my gosh, you built this? They'd be like, oh, that was my son. And I was like, what? I didn't do anything. But I got full credit for building that sandcastle and for that final product. But the thing is, I didn't do anything. But I think that's exactly how it is with this idea of holiness is like God wants to make us into something. He's going to make us into something. All we have to do is literally show up and just pursue him. And when we do that, he begins to refine us through the spirit and he begins to accredit this, this end product to us, and I think that um, this is something that Christians get the pleasure of experiencing not just once, but over the lifespan. We get to, for our entire lives, day to day, have this, this sanctification process where we're walking with God, and God's convicting us, God is molding us, God is moving us, and he's conforming us from this this rebellious nature into the image of his son, and I think that's a beautiful thing, and I think that's probably one of the coolest things about sanctification is that we get to live in that on a day-to-day basis. We have this process that we're walking through with God. Uh, So uh, I kind of want to go ahead and close this in some prayer uh, before we break out to communion, but uh, if you want to, just go ahead and uh, bow your heads with me. God, we thank you for this day, and we just really thank you for this building that we're in and the fact that we get to meet here. Uh, And We we know that we're uh, people who come from a culture that in a way, is warped, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't like you and the things that you're about. And uh, I just ask that you you, you you begin to work in this culture, uh, both on your own through your spirit, but also through us, and that you begin these processes of sanctification in our lives, that you begin to make us holy, you make us set apart, and you begin to make us more different, uh, so that we can actually go out into these cultures, we can go out into the, the world that we have around us, and we can begin to actually shine your light to the nations and become the people you want us to be so that we can bring other people back to you so that they can also continue that work. Uh, we thank you for Jesus and what he did on the cross for us and how that, it makes all that possible and how we are able to have this relationship with you through him and that we're able to even start this process of sanctification, this process of becoming different, becoming holy through you and what you've done on the cross. Uh, So we just ask that you begin these works in all of us today as we get ready to close.